when we feel good mentally, it means that we have a better perception of ourselves, our self-image, our self-worth. That feeds into how you show up sexually, your behaviors and attitudes as a sexual person. Hi everyone, I'm Hetty Holmes and you're listening to Hacking Happiness with Dose, the podcast that explores what makes us feel good to get those happy hormones firing. My next guests are Billy Quinlan and Dr. Anna Hushlack, founders of Fairly, an audio guide to mindful sex, with sensual stories to get us in the mood, guided practices that create connection and intimacy, and programs to help us to cultivate confidence. Their aim is to make the art of sexual self-care simple, sensual, and unashamedly normal. App users say, this app helps me to relax and get in touch with my body, educates me and my boyfriend in a fun way, helps me after being assaulted and struggling with an eating disorder, and fills the gaps in my knowledge. In this podcast, Billy and Anna discuss their journey to creating the app, where they open up about their experiences of sexual assault, their views on porn, tantra, hair removal, and the importance of fitness to our sexual health. As ever, we are so thankful to all our listeners for tuning in each week. To help us to keep going, we would love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe. Also, please share our newsletter to your friends, family, or anyone who you think needs a hit of happiness in their inbox. I hope you enjoy. Thank you both so much for joining me on the day's podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you both on. It's, um, it's a very exciting app that you guys have developed, and I'm keen to hear more about it. Um, I've, I've heard that it's described as the world's first digital sexual well-being studio, right? Is that is that how you would describe it? We that we did for a while. We did we did describe it for a while because we were trying to encompass like the same sort of experience that you have with fitness, normalizing yeah. the investment in your sexual well-being the same way as we do in our in our physical health and our physical well-being. And we wanted to create a space, a digital space for you to really do that, somewhere that you felt like you could show up, be your full self, really enjoy it, learn, have fun, enjoy develop a skill whilst taking care of yourself so yeah we did talk about it like that for a while um but we now we now talk about it as your audio guide to mindful sex because we use mindfulness as a core uh framework within the app to really help people enjoy their sexuality more get more pleasure from it ultimately have better sex so yeah now we say fairly is your audio guide to mindful sex nice and so who would you say it specifically for I think so. I would actually say foods for anyone who wants to explore having healthier, more confident, and more pleasurable sex. Um, definitely as a starting point, we're focused on empowering women and folks with vulvas. And I think there's a few reasons for that. So, off the top of my head, the first one would be around the pleasure gap and pleasure inequality, specifically for heterosexual women. Um, but I think kind of across the board, uh, the board for women and folks with fathers, and that's much higher for that group. Yeah. I think secondly, um, a lot of folks in those communities have experienced some form of sexual violence or sexual trauma, and they're kind of rediscovering their experience to themselves as well as their experience with sex. And thirdly, I'd say a lot of it is that we can we can relate to it. So I think both Billy and, Billy and I have had to navigate our own relationship to sex and, and to how we kind of live and breathe and exist with our sexuality. So it's very much a work in progress um, and an experience that we can speak to more personally. Yeah. So I, I did read on your website that you, you kind of, what gave you the idea was that you were both victims of sexual assault. Would you be comfortable to talk about that in a bit more detail about how it kind of got you to, to where you are today? Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. Do you want to kick off? <laughs> <laughs> we talk quite openly about um, about this, and I we have very different but similar stories. Not similar, very different but sort of same experience. But yeah. I, in 2016, I was sexually assaulted in the workplace um, mm-hmm. by a senior colleague, and it was the first time that I really felt fully objectified and sort of my sexuality wasn't my own. Mm. And that sent me on quite a negative trajectory for the next sort of six to eight months. And in my final year of university, I'd suffered with depression. I started seeing, after this incident, I started seeing a lot of the same behaviors and attitudes flaring up in myself. And I was really kind of scared of that because uh, I didn't want to kind of rewind back three years because I'd made like a really amazing progress forward. Um, and so I decided to kind of be quite proactive with it and see how I could take control of my health again but it was the first time I really made a link between my health and my sexuality it's not something that we have been taught about previously we've been taught that 
sex is about a physical act it's something that we do um, it's normally for the purposes of procreation and we are trying not to get diseased <laughs> you know that's sort of the premise of our sex education rather than it's about pleasure and that it's an important pillar of our well-being so it was only after the sexual assault that I made the connection between my health and my sexuality because the incident created a direct result in kind of a negative spiral with my health mm. and so I started training to become a health coach because I felt traditional approaches like traditional medical approaches weren't sort of serving me and I think this is something that our community feel all the time we got feedback about this a lot is that GPs healthcare practitioners can be quite dismissive about this topic they can wrongly diagnose they can brush it off as um you know one one I, woman i was talking to recently the gp brushed off her painful sex as she was just doing it wrong she was in the wrong position so i think that this trusted source of kind of healthcare information can often reduce women who have this negative experience of their sexuality can be very dismissive of their experience or not provide the kind of level of care and support that we would expect and i think that's very common because actually when you're training to be a doctor you get very lim limited um teachings around sexual health and so i felt like traditional approaches to medicine and, and my health weren't serving me so i trained to become a health coach and as i was doing that i think i le i leant towards focusing and working with women because at this time i had quite a negative relationship with men just because of obviously what I'd, I'd kind of gone through and so i started working with a lot of female clients we were talking about health we were talking about how health more holistically and this kind of concept around sex and sexuality and problems of sex and problems of pleasure kept reoccurring and kept rearing their heads and so i found it super interesting and became quite determined to work on a solution that really served women with their wellness and i felt to do that on scale i'd need technology which led me to zinc which is a company builder program where i met anna so mm. that's sort of my journey to that point and then anna i guess you can talk about your journey to that point and then we can talk about how we got from there to <laughs> <I've been> together. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool, thanks, Bills. So I think, yeah, similarly, um, a lot of the stuff that Bills mentioned is something that I think we can all kind of resonate and relate to around, yeah, navigating depression, navigating stress, navigating anxiety and, and our sense of self and how that gets wrapped up in it. For me, uh, specifically around uh, my sexual experiences historically, and I think just to put a bit of a trigger warning in there as well. Um, so I was raped when I was 15, and it's how I lost my virginity. And um, at the time, whilst it, like deep down I knew that's what it was, it didn't take form in the way in which I had been taught essentially that rape does take place. So. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't with a stranger. It was with somebody I was seeing who was older than me. And, you know, in, in every other instance, it, it was pretty much by the book what it was. But I think because I was in a relationship with the person at the time, I wasn't really educated on on that's actually what rape looks like. And, and also, I think, um, unfortunately, most of the instances of sexual violence do happen with a partner or people we know. And it's, it's not something that, despite that, we're often taught about or told about. Um, and then I think the kind of cascade of that was a journey around almost feeling that sex was an obligation or sex was my duty or sex was something that I was expected to kind of um, go through these motions or these performances with in order to please the other. And sex up until my mid-20s was really never about my own pleasure and about my own experiences. Um, and it was interesting. I was actually doing some research a while ago around consent and, and the concept of consent. And there's this term called sexual compliance, which just absolutely pisses me off so much. But it's this idea of consenting to unwanted sex, which in and of itself is just doesn't really make sense. But, you know, I think it was something that I really resonated with in that, you know, I think a large part of my journey um, not only with myself, but with others felt that a lot of it was for them. And I didn't really give myself permission to, to say no or to check in with how I feel or to tune into my body and to connect with myself and to feel present and to really own my pleasure. 
And so I think in general, there is, yeah, the, the kind of, it wasn't only until my mid twenties and even in the last few years since starting fully that I've really started to actually tap into understanding what sex means to me and how important that is to my sense of self and the way in which I navigate through the world. Um, and then I think specifically what brought me to the zinc side of things. So my background has been, you know, spending 12 years in academia and my research has always been human centered, if you would, or, or very much focused on the lived experiences of everyday people. And a lot of my career alongside that was working in the nonprofit sector and that was with um, working with vulnerable groups of people. And so I think for me, it's always been about the sense of duty of care and ethical, ethical obligation to the communities that I serve. And a lot of my frustration with that was, you know, whilst academia and research is phenomenal and obviously charities do amazing work, the pace with which they're able to actually create change and the autonomy that they have around the decisions they make is really limited. And I think also alongside that, um, my kind of specific interest in gender and say sexual inequality came with working with these communities, again, through the lens of kind of academia and nonprofit, but it was seeing things like, you know, femicide in Mexico and Honduras, seeing things like corrective rape in South Africa, and then, you know, moving to the UK and, and growing up in Canada and seeing those things as well, but also in very different forms. So a lack of women leaders in science or business or looking at the wage gap or seeing kind of everyday instances of sexism. And I think that, you know, it's almost been this slow burn that led to this massive frustration where it was like enough is enough and, and I want to do something about this and not only be part of the movement, but actually be, you know, responsible and involved in driving it. So that's definitely where I came to Zinc um, and where I met Billy. And I think given both of our backgrounds, we really resonated around, yeah, just around thinking about mental and emotional health and how can we actually have this large scale change and be part of this, you know, social movement towards gender equality and sexual equality that um, we just had both felt in our own lives had been lacking. So you, you guys met and then how long was it before you, you decided to go into business together? <laughs> <laughs> we were like, we, we just jumped straight into the one, like the one night stand, didn't we, Anna? <laughs> yeah. We were like, let's just have a little one night stand. And then I think it led to what has been a phenomenal deep committed relationship ever since. <laughs> <laughs> and is that working in different countries or were you both in London at the same time for a while living near each other? Or do you find like working in the tech business, it's totally fine to connect like from wherever you are through, through use of Zoom and FaceTime and things like that? No, we've had our lives uprooted through COVID actually. So <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> to, say the, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. No, we met in London and yeah. uh, hit it off very quickly. And it's funny because they say, don't go into business with your friends. But Anna and I are very different people, very different mm -hmm. skill sets. We just have a, we're just united by our core values. Those are, you know, very solid. And we kind of have the same belief and same vision of the future world that we want to create. And that's what brought us together. So we got on really well. We had the shared vision. She's become, you know, one of my best friends, but we are very different in skill sets, which why the partnership works mm. so well. But we, yeah, we were in London for the first year, just over a year and a half of building Furley. And then we decided to make the leap over to the US because the US will be such a huge market for us. So we moved to LA. I had landed and been there six weeks. Anna was about five days away from coming. Uh, all of her boxes were already there. She had not renewed, Anna's Canadian. So yeah. she hadn't renewed her UK visa because we had just got US visas. So what's the point? In renewing a UK visa but our US visas hadn't quite come through and then COVID hit and Anna was no longer allowed into America she wasn't allowed to stay in the UK so it was forced back to Canada and I was forced back to the UK and we've been living and working long distance ever since uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. so I noticed on the site you spell woman with an x is this to take into account like transgender non-binary communities are you against terms like work wife you, I mentioned I heard you call each other best friends but like that term work wife gets thrown around you, would you find that quite unfeminist so uh, I'm gonna dive in on the first one I, yes. I think there's probably two separate questions uh, and have thoughts on both of them but the first one is around the spelling and this is this is a great question and one that we're happily challenged on as well so I think I discuss more the intention behind it. And I think the, the kind of part two of that is whether we're actually achieving the intention or not. And I think that's something we're still 
um, having conversations with on and open to get challenged on and open to feedback on that because it's a learning for us. So the intention in spelling it with an X definitely was around inclusivity and it was looking at um, you know, kind of historic instances of white feminism where uh, people of color had been left out of those conversations or hadn't necessarily been included in that type of feminism. It was looking at radical feminism past that had been systematically exclusionary of non-gender conforming people, non-binary people, trans people, etc. I think the learning where we're, um, or the learning we're having around it is, for example, a woman with an X in terms of speaking about trans folks, you know, trans women are real women. <laughs> so whether it's with an X or not, it's still in, you know, we don't really need to spell it with an X to represent trans women because they are through and through women. I think that the broader question for us was around the non-binary and the non-gender conforming community, as well as uh, people of color and how that creates inclusivity for them, as well as thinking through the gendered nature of language. So. For example, if you look in the US and you see the words Latino and Latina, historically that's, you know, sitting gender and binaries and, and it's a masculine and a feminine kind of um, grouping of, of language. So the use of X, for example, on Latino and Latina is a way of creating inclusivity around um, non-gender conforming communities. Now, I think where the difficulty comes is uh, English by default does not have the same kind of male feminine divide in language as for example Spanish does and I think the this is where whilst the intention is there what we're finding is um, there's really mixed feedback from those communities so some folks from those communities and this also varies from culture to culture and I would say from country to country as well some from folks from those communities have reached out and said they really appreciate that that really makes them feel seen and heard and that the intention they know is around inclusivity and that's the thing that they resonate with whether or not we're going to get it right is, is a slightly different topic. And we've had other folks from those communities um, be frustrated with the term and feel that it's, that it's exclusionary. Less so from people of color, but more so, I would say, from non-gender conforming communities and saying that, you know, you're still including me with this branch of women and I don't associate it with it whatsoever. whatsoever. So actually, I'd rather be, you know, the language that resonates with me more is um, folks with vulvas um, and people with vulvas and using it in that type of way. So yeah, going back to the original question around we spell it, the intention was around inclusivity. And I think the learnings that we're having are around whether the intention is actually achieving what we've, what we've hoped it to do. So we are actually, um, I'm going through several different conversations with folks from those communities and also across different, different countries, because for example, the UK and the US actually vary on this quite a bit and seeing what resonates and doesn't resonate. And depending on the feedback we get and you know, the kind of insights from those communities and, and how those communities prefer to be um, included and, and the language they prefer to use, we likely will change it or not change it. So that's a bit of a work in progress in the moment, but I think the, the kind of more interesting piece around it is how we think about the history and the power in language and how we also think about um, speaking for and speaking on behalf of those communities rather than speaking with them or listening to those communities. And I'd say we're very much focused on the learning from those communities and listening and active allyship and making sure that we do think about inclusivity in the best way possible. And that might be that we've actually got it wrong and the spelling needs to change. So yeah. work in progress. <laughs> and the term work wife, good thing, bad thing. I think Bills, do you want to, yeah, go. Sorry, I yeah, was going to go ahead on that one. <laughs> I think that there are some pros and cons to it. I think that the term wife uh, has traditionally been a term that's associated with the home and therefore emotional labor. So I think when it's used to describe a male-female partnership at work, what can often come with that is the connotation or the association that that person not only has to be your colleague, colleague, but they also have to be your emotional support and someone that has to do that emotional labor as well. And I think that's where it can be a controversial or and or slightly harmful term to use. I think if you have a relationship with the person that's calling you that and you are fine with it and it works for you, the dynamic between the two of you and it's something that doesn't undermine the nature of, of the work that you're doing or the relationship that you have in front of others. It's something that you call each other privately as a joke and you both understand sort of the power dynamics of that. Um, then I think that's up to the individuals as well. It's not a term that we personally use at Furley. I don't 
cool Anna, my work wife. But I mean, she is definitely someone that holds a lot of my emotional labor as well. <laughs> so maybe I should start using that term for her. But no, I think it's, I think the, when it can become problematic is when there has to be a, there's an expectation that that person or that work wife will hold not only the, the work relationship, but also the emotional labor that's associated with that role as well. Um, but I think if it works for the individuals and, and it's not undermining anything you're doing and you're not getting extra unpaid work associated to it, then I don't see any problems with it. But Anna might have a completely different view. We don't always agree yeah. on things. No, that's cool. Um, so, but at Fairly, you say it's not about having like good sex necessarily, but it's understanding and prioritizing the imp- most important relationship you have, which is the one with yourself. I thought that was really interesting. So when I first heard about your app, I kind of thought it was, yeah, to you know, have better orgasms, to have, like, to have better sex. But then the more I read about it, it was more about kind of giving the power back to the female. And, and it's just interesting to hear you discuss that, kind of the side of it, the business, to kind of just, yeah, educate the market on, on what you've created. Yeah, definitely. We say that sex starts with you and that in order to have a really powerful sexual experience or really pleasurable sexual experience the first step is to really understand yourself and so that's why we say it's the most important relationship is the one that you have with yourself and I think when it comes to women or folk revolvers we've not traditionally been given permission to really explore that relationship or to prioritize that relationship so at Furley we're about empowering you to do the work enjoy the experience and find out what pleasure means to you and when we say sex as well we're talking about sex that's much broader than just the physical act of sex. We're talking about sexuality. We're talking about the way that you express and experience your relationship to sex rather than just, you know, penis and and vagina sex, which is sometimes what it gets boiled down to. And so for us at Furley and, and the journey that we take our community on when they download the app is all about finding out what pleasure means to you first. And then if you are really satisfied with that, you've got great language around your pleasure and your needs, you are reaching the pleasurable experiences that you want in your solo practice, and you're ready to start exploring that with someone else, then you can transition and kind of begin that journey with another person. And it's as much about the other person doing the work on themselves individually as well, understanding what their pleasure means understanding what their needs are what their desires are so that you can come together with a very open and healthy dialogue about that express yourselves clearly and make sure that your both needs are being met so yeah for us it is about you first it's about your self-pleasure practice which is goes beyond just masturbation it's much more holistic it's about really getting to grips with what turns you on and what turns you off so that you can communicate that to another person but more importantly so that you can acknowledge it and understand it for yourself so that you can live the fullest expression of your sexuality yeah no I think it's great because you're actually making people find the space in their day to actually carve out like a sexual self-care routine which goes beyond having a hot bath and putting a face mask on you know it's actually creating space to maybe get kind of you know tools around you or books or things that will get help you to get in that zone so yeah it's great I mean do you both have a sexual self-care routine is that becoming more mainstream now to talk about well I think the biggest misconception with (laughs) desire is that it's something that just happens that it's Mm. quite spontaneous and I think we're living busier and busier lives and so in order to have a you know really kind of help or or the, the level of desire and arousal that you want you do need to cultivate that you do need to create space in your busy life to actually create a scenario where you allow yourself to become aroused and you allow that desire to kind of emerge from within you it's not always just going to spontaneously show up and actually for women majority the majority of women it doesn't just do that um and so it is about sexual self-care and I don't think that's a very popular term yet but I think the idea around self-care is really understood. So we're sort of trying to play on that language. We're trying to help people draw relationship between the kind of things that they do for themselves for their own self-care practice and then how they can build their sexuality into that. So we're not asking them to change their behaviors and, and 
completely do something totally left field. We're just saying that you already have a self-care practice that doesn't even necessarily need to be daily. For most of us, it's probably weekly. And especially when it comes to our sexuality, that's probably much more of a weekly practice than it is daily. I mean, I'm sure we'd all love to be having lots of orgasms every day, but I think it can be a lot harder than that to cultivate that space. But giving yourself permission on a weekly basis to really create that for yourself is really rewarding and yeah, really necessary to keep that kind of healthy, fulfilled life going. And in terms of our own uh, self-care, sexual self-care routines, I definitely cannot speak for Anna's. We are close, but I'm not, <laughs> we're not that close. <laughs> to be fair, you probably could speak for quite a bit of <laughs> Probably, probably true. Um, but I'm in a relationship and I definitely find it hard to uh, create that space at times but we do have a good agreement between the two of us that masturbation is something very important well self-pleasure is something very important to me um, and so I do try and take that time for myself whether it is in the bath on a Sunday night or whether it is when he goes off to work he's back in the office now and so I do get to have a little bit of time and space for myself and I also as you rightly said Hattie I use kind of books to grow that knowledge and I consider that part of my self-care routine. I tune into the audio sessions with Furley, think about self-compassion, you know, when I'm really busy and, and reminding myself to be very present and aware of that and kind of, yeah, gentle with myself. Um, yeah. But it is difficult when you're in a relationship. I got, I got caught the other day. I locked myself out of the house and I had left my vibrator on the bed and I locked myself out of the house for a weekend because my boyfriend was in France and he got home before me and the bed was a mess and um my my vibrator was just sprayed out <laughs> so he was like oh busted <laughs> been having fun without me <laughs> nice um and thinking about porn like how damaging do you think it is for our sexuality do you think like a lot of us millennials can maybe have grown up with it and it's it's damaging and maybe the gen z's are learning that it's not necessarily the best way or thanks to apps like burly that are helping us to you know discover our sexuality in our in our own way i think so just jumping in on that one i think even even before that there's an interesting question around just being mindful not to jump into kind of binary or all or nothing type thinking so mm. uh, this idea of is it you know porn across the board is that damaging you know there's aspects of it that are but there's also aspects of it that are really phenomenal and i also think when we speak about porn you know, what, what do we specifically mean? Do we mean video porn? Do we mean audio porn? Do we mean illustrations? Do we mean photography? Do we mean, you know, mainstream porn, alternative for, porn? And so I think, yeah, it's, it's, I think the first kind of point to that is just being mindful of how we actually talk about it and, and what we mean when we're discussing it. So, mm. you know, with that kind of caveat, I think discussing mainstream video porn, which is what generally I think, um, you know, folks are referencing when, when they talk about porn being damaging to a sexuality. Definitely, I think there's aspects of it that have been, you know, and I think looking through, for example, um, and this is regardless of your gender or your orientation, like aspects of toxic masculinity, access and um, aspects of performance, aspects of, body ideals, consent, power dynamics, is what's being depicted realistic? Um, are we seeing kind of more explicit healthy sex acts in there, like condom usage? Is it overemphasizing orgasm and climax and making that seem like that's what, quote, good sex looks like, rather than actually thinking about pleasure more broadly? So I think all of those things have definitely influenced the way in which we think about sex. And, and you know, we can see that very clearly. You know, a really interesting statistic around that is, I don't know the exact number, but it's a huge rise in anal sex, for example, amongst um, younger generations because of that being displayed as a very common thing in porn. So it's seen as it's not really sex, but it's kind of, you know, foreplay to real sex. And so it doesn't actually count. And so I think there's interesting aspects of that that definitely influence the way in which we think about porn. Um, no, we think about sex, but on the flip side, I think there's also certain types of porn, again, and this is where the differentiation is really important in what we're actually talking about when we talk about porn, that are really great for our sexuality. So, for example, the use of um, stories or the use of audio erotica or the use of, you know, if it's visual porn, the use of 
feminist illustration, illustration and seeing the rise of feminist video porn. So, you know, Erica Lust, for example, um, or Make Love Not Porn is another one. And it's thinking about challenging what have been the quote, like more destructive or damaging sides of that. So making sure that that's very consensual, making sure that the labor that's involved in that is represented and paid for, making sure that it's showing the realistic, messy, everyday, awkward encounters of sex, making sure that it's showing the diversity of sex. So it's not always, you know, heterosexual, alpha male. It might be, it, it's not necessarily also, um, gender might be thought of in different ways. The kind of gender roles might be thought of in different ways. It might not be about orgasm. It might not even be about penetration. And I think it's really powerful in actually helping us to explore our boundaries and think about what we like and what we dislike and what we might be curious about or something we might wanna try because we notice like, oh shit, I've had a bit of a fanny flutter. So maybe something's <laughs> happening here. I wanna step outside of the familiar, I'm curious. It sparked my imagination. It's helping me get in the mood if I need a little boost because Maybe I am stressed from work and I, I can't just switch on because I do experience responsive desire and actually I need to create that, that sensual environment. So I think, yeah, overarchingly, you know, there's absolutely, there's, there's major cons to porn. And again, porn, specifically speaking to mainstream porn, non-consensual porn, um, porn that's not necessarily paying its workers or taking care of its workers, et cetera. On the flip side, ethical porn, and I'd say more feminist porn is hugely powerful and I think really important to a lot of individuals in terms of helping them really tap into and tune into their body and, and to create the environment for desire. It'd be interesting to discuss your views on Tantra because I don't know if you guys have seen the recent Netflix Unwell documentary, but that is an episode and it, it kind of shows the, the good, the bad and the ugly side of it. Um, you, you sh it shows you know one couple that, uh, working through some really serious stuff together and it's really kind of proving beneficial to their relationship but then you, it also shows a lot of women who have been sexually assaulted through tantra practices so yeah just interested to hear your views on it i think so for me i haven't actually seen it but i've heard about it and i yeah. think just um having done a bit of research around tantra more broadly um i i think the kind of starting point that i would say around it is Power dynamics exist in every interaction, whether they're sexual or not, you know, you see. And certainly when, uh, when you have, I guess, almost belief systems or behaviors or ideologies, and those are being applied through a lens of power. So, you know, like a really obvious example that comes to mind is like Nexium. Um, not saying that Tantra is, is the equivalent of Nexium, but again, you have certain principles that are being taken advantage of and you have certain individuals that are coming in in a position that don't necessarily have power or can be, can be very predatory. So I think regardless of, of what the practice is, especially when it's around you know, vulnerability, when it's around letting other individuals in, whether it's around um, physical touch, there's always going to be a power dynamic to that. I think the challenge from what I've what I know, and I'm, I'm not a tantrika, so I can't necessarily speak to that from, from first-hand experience, but only from having spoken to a lot of folks from the tantric, you know, that are tantrikas or from the tantric community, is more so around the cherry picking, if you would, of what is actually a way of being and, and much more of an ideology and a philosophy. So I think certainly kind of modern takes on tantra seem to be picking it up as you know like tantra sex mind-blowing orgasms do this position and like this will result in the best sex ever and i think actually that's a very very narrow and limited way of actually looking at tantra which is much more around um yeah a way of existing and, and moving through the world so i think that's that's interesting in and of itself um speaking on the kind of broader practice of tantra where you know, I think there's some really amazing and, and beneficial aspects to that is around, um, if done well, is actually around equalizing power or playing with power dynamics. So, for example, you know, some of the practices might involve um, week one, I'm going to be with my partner and actually this is all going to be about me. So everything my partner does is in service of me. That means that they run me a bath, they make me dinner. That means that they put fresh towels out. That means that they give me a massage and actually the massage is probably not even gonna result 
in sex. It's just a massage for the purpose of touch and pleasure. And then, you know, that, that is the evening, that is my night. And that is all about me giving myself permission to receive and to have pleasure and to um, not feel selfish in owning my pleasure. Then week two is the flip side. So it's that I do all of these things for my partner based on their preferences. And I say, you know, what's sensual to you? What do you enjoy? How do we create intimacy? How do we, how do we connect with each other in that way? How do we play with touch, touch in a non-sexual way, but in a sensual way? And then that's experiencing the act of just giving and giving and giving and giving without expectation of receiving something and giving without expectation of it having to, to end up in something, you know, and then week three is now actually let's meet each other. So I'm going to do this for you and you're going to receive, you're going to do this for me and I'm going to receive. And it's much more a way of challenging power dynamics. And um, I actually think around creating equality in relationships. So yeah, you know, whilst I haven't, haven't seen it, but the controversy around um, sexual exploitation, around um, abuse of power, around kind of predatory behavior and taking advantage of often like vulnerable or open or in some cases um you know folks that might be working through their own experiences and lack, lack of confidence around sex like definitely i'm sure that exists but my challenge would be that that exists in tantra or not that exists in every relationship we have um and so it's, it's less about whether it's tantra and i think it's more around ensuring you know, psychological safety, ensuring consent, ensuring um, if you want to play with power dynamics, that that's contracted in advance, that that's revisited, that that's established and communicated and that boundaries are set. And I think that that's irrespective of Tantra, you know, that's, that's what I would argue we should be doing in all relationships around having healthy, pleasurable and um, confident sex. Yeah. And Billy, do you, what, what are your thoughts on Tantra? Yeah, similarly. And this is something that Anna, I said before, we don't always agree, but we do here. I, I think um, on more of a anecdotal story, a friend of mine is a sex coach or training to be a sex coach. And she spent some time in Australia recently who have a very progressive attitude towards this. Um, in certain parts of Australia, they're very sort of forward thinking and they had some big tantra festivals. And as someone who is in the industry, very comfortable with the topic of sex, is exploring her boundaries and immersing herself in the space she went along with a very open mind of what the experience would be and what she would get from it and she actually found herself quite uncomfortable in that situation and felt that it had pushed her be beyond the comfort level of going outside of her comfort zone that she was happy with um, and I think similarly to you know the points that we've made around how tantra can sometimes be abused or be um misused i think this is an example of where she felt that that was happening and i think in some cases those that practice tantra can sometimes do it in a very performative way and it is actually about who can have the most kind of outer body experience and who can display that level of pleasure the greatest and in those sort of public spaces so there i think that you just have to as an individual understand what your boundaries are go into it with your eyes open and know when enough is enough and mm -hmm. a, and feel like you're in a space that you can kind of come back from if you need to and i think that where this can get abused at times is for those suffering of sexual violence survivors of sexual violence and sexual assault who are looking to really reconnect with their body after such an awful thing um, where that has been taken from them and tantra can sometimes be used or sort of any sort of sex festivals in that way can be used to help you reconnect equally it does also attract some that are wanting to misuse that situation so I think it's just about you as an individual really understanding what the experience is what you want to get from it what your red lines are and your boundaries are and um, and and listening to your body being very intuitive about your body and I, that requires trust in your body which can be hard for those that feel disconnected but if something does feel very wrong then it's a sign for you that you should step away from that experience so yeah i think those are my views yeah i think also it's um it is that interesting one of like similarly to porn like it's a word that gets thrown a lot tantra but how i guess and, and again i don't know because i'm not a tantrika but for community members who practice that seriously you know, that's not a like 
one-off festival on the weekend or I'm going to get a book on like tantric positions 101 that is you know it is their literal way of life and so I think that's where it's also difficult to kind of say it in again like an all or nothing type way because it's you know is it actually being practiced as it was intended to be practiced is it being represented in the way it was intended to be represented is it are there subsects or variations or like offshoots of that? And do those get lumped in with how it was designed in its original purposes? And, and so I think it's, it's also difficult because it has been, um, you know, in some ways just taken and, and morphed into all these different aspects of it. And I, some of those aspects then are really shitty and those do have a really bad um, representation on Tantra as a whole. Yet, I think Tantra as a whole, as it was intended and designed, is actually a really beautiful, again, way of, way of being and, and um, a really powerful way of existing. Unfortunately, though, it's not necessarily being used in the ways in which it was intentionally, you know, or has been cultivated around being used for. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's not all Rod Stewart, multiple, is it Rod Stewart? <laughs> no, it's Sting, isn't it? It's Sting. Yeah. Sting and Sting. Yeah. Oh, Sting. Yeah, not Roger. Sorry, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> Easy mistake. Yeah. I um, so thinking about like self-care practices. So um, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on waxing, especially like the Hollywoods and the Brazilians. Um, do you think that is a bit of a anti-feminist thing that we should be doing to our bodies? And uh, what, what about lasering to remove it entirely? Like I certainly find since becoming a mum and seeing obviously like my baby, like I'm kind of conscious that it's it's probably not the best thing for her to, to grow up and see her mum without any hair. And it's kind of think, making me think, even though I like it a certain way, like it, it's a kind of responsibility I have to show her what like a true feminine pubic region should look like and, and, and show her different kind of ideas of it. So just, yeah, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, this is a really, really tricky one. And I agree with you on so many levels. Um, but at the same time, I'm in the process right now of having laser hair removal <laughs> and I've gone all off. And actually, when I did intend to have a Brazilian because I wanted to leave some hair for the exact same reason I felt a responsibility, even though children are nowhere near my horizon, no. <laughs> I still felt I want to have... Um, I feel a responsibility to show my child that it is totally normal to have pubic hair and that it's totally a choice with what you want to do with it. And my choice was to get rid of some of it. But actually, it was so painful in the moment that I totally lost track of what she was doing and she got rid of it all. <laughs> so I'm now working with a, a bald vulva. But I think this is, this is something that I find really conflicting and I do feel... You know, you know, is it Deborah Meaden who does, is it Deborah? No, not Deborah Meaden. She's the um, Dragon's Lady, isn't she? Yeah. What's Deborah um, from, I'm a bad feminist, but mm. guilty feminist. Um, wait, let's find out who she is. Feminist. Uh, feminist. Deborah. Deborah Francis White. Deborah Francis White. Yes. If you've ever listened to Guilty Feminist, Deborah Francis White, they always start at the beginning of that with, I'm a feminist, but... And that's how I feel about this. I'm a feminist, but I'm getting laser hair removal because I hate ingrown hairs. I hate spending money on getting it waxed. And I hate not being able to put on a tiny skimpy bikini uh, every day of the year. But, you know, yeah. women should do what they want to do with their pubic hair. So um, I, I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one for me. Yeah, reconcile. I think, do you know, it's an interesting one as well because I guess for me, like, I don't really care, um, which I think is like the more, maybe like the more interesting thing for me is like, to me, it's, it's your body of preference, do whatever you want with it. And I would say it's all about choice. But then I think the caveat with that is that it's about informed choice. So why do we feel we need to get rid of our hair? Okay, well, you know, there's a whole history around advertising and, you know, going all the way back to like the introduction of women wearing shorter skirts and like showing legs. And then there's a whole thing around this is what's considered sexy and, you know, fine. And I think there's, well, I mean, not fine that that's there, but fine that like that's the history. And, and so for me, it's more of like, if I want to get rid of it, I'm getting rid of it despite knowing the history and knowing the kind of the messaging or the media that's directed me to think that I need to behave a certain way or look a certain way or act a certain way. And I'm still making an informed choice because it's my preference. So 
yeah, I think the, the interesting, like what I find for me is, or, or like a, an interesting experiment at the moment, for example, with COVID is would I go and wax or shave knowing that nobody's going to be going down there, knowing that nobody's going to be seeing it, knowing that I'm not wearing a bathing suit because it's Canada and it's not as lush and warm as other places, would I still do it? And the question is, yeah. Um, well, the answer for me is, well, it's yes, sometimes, no, sometimes, but, um, that's that's the kind of thing am i doing it for myself because i don't want i don't want to deal with hair because i sweat a lot because i don't want to deal with ingrowns because i find it uncomfortable because i find it itchy because of i just like the look of it and whatever it is that's informing that choice it's it's coming from my own active awareness of like the social construct but also just what i want and what feels good for me so yeah, I think I don't, I don't actually associate it. And I think I would find it frustrating. Um, but this is, this is a personal thing. If somebody was to say like, you're a bad feminist because you wax, like I would actually feel that that's undermining the broader feminist movement more generally. And it's, it's the sense of saying like, whether I choose to wax or not, doesn't make me a bad feminist and it doesn't make me a bad mom. You know, it's, it's a preference and I know the, I know the kind of history around it and I'm still choosing because it, it's either feels right or it doesn't feel right or I want it or I don't want it. And that's okay. But I think to, you know, put other, you know, other folks down because of their preferences and to say like, you're a good feminist or a bad feminist is actually really alienating. And it, it undermines the broader purpose of like, as a movement, how do we lift one another up? And, and I think by, yeah, by shaming or, um, yeah, for lack of a better word, for shaming folks based on the decision for body hair or not body hair is actually really undermining what it is we're trying to do more broadly. Yeah, no, very interesting answers. Yeah, I, I'm, I think it's quite a polarizing subject, but it needn't be. Um, in the modern world but um yeah so thinking about like happiness in terms of like fitness like how important is fitness to your kind of to your happiness and your mental health like do you also find that being fitter helps in your in the bedroom like sexually oh well fitness is very important to both of our lives yeah um <laughs> we yeah we, we are outdoor bunnies for sure um Anna's really really into her climbing I'm massively into water sports basically any activity that feels a little bit extreme Um, and I think that is generally amazing for both of our mental health and something we were discussing earlier actually when we don't have it we feel very antsy and irritable and can really notice the difference on our kind of output and productivity and outlook on life so it's very important in that respect um in terms of for your sex life physical health sexual health mental health they're all intertwined when we feel good mentally it means that we have a better perception of ourselves our self-image our self-worth that feeds into how you show up sexually your behaviors and attitudes as a sexual person if we feel good physically in our physical bodies, we're free of kind of disease or illness or chronic pain, then we're able to be more present um, and aware in our sexual experiences, which therefore increases our pleasure and our, our general enjoyment of that experience. So I think it comes down to the fact that all of our pillars of health are really intertwined. And when one of them falls down, it has an impact on the others and then our overall well-being. So that's the interesting thing about health and about sexual health specifically is that we focus very much on physical and mental and of sexual health, we focused really on disease and, and sort of STIs and STDs prevention or, or fertility and, and pregnancy. We haven't really focused on pleasure, but there are three pillars to our wellness and they're all connected. And within sexual health, pleasure is a really important component of that. And when we feel good physically and we feel good mentally, it's easier for us to access pleasure and experience pleasure. So you definitely don't need a six pack <laughs> or, you know, really big biceps so that you can do some crazy move where you hold each other up over your heads and suck each other nipples in that way. <laughs> I don't know what you might be doing. But you, I think we, we definitely don't need to create a rhetoric around you have to be 
you know, incredibly fit, slim, um, strong in order to have pleasure. It's much more about how you feel in your body and, and therefore how you're able to experience pleasure. Mm. Yeah, sorry, Anna, don't you go for it. I was going to say, I think on that, like it's, it's not really about like fitness, for example, or, um, I think to me, it's, it's much more again about like the broader thing of, am I taking care of myself? Am I taking care of myself mentally? Am I taking care of myself emotionally? Am I taking care of myself socially? Am I taking care of myself physically? Am I taking care of myself sexually? And so I think, you know, going back to the original thing of like, sex starts with oneself and your well-being across all of those aspects starts with oneself that's not you know other things will feed into that but if i'm not if i'm not cultivating that and i'm not managing that and i'm not um prioritizing that and i'm not valuing that then inevitably those those pillars are going to fall and there's going to be implications of that so if i'm having you know sex because I feel like I need to be having sex, then that's not good for my mental well-being. And I'm going to feel exhausted and I'm going to feel worried about it. And that's going to influence my levels of stress, which is going to have a knock-on impact on my physical health, which is then going to make me feel less motivated to get movement, which make me feel, makes me feel less connected with my body. And then I want to have sex less all over again, you know? And I think as, as Bill's highlighted, like it's, it's very much about this kind of integrated intersectional and holistic way of thinking about our well-being and to me all of that comes down to is like how much do I care about myself how much do I feel not only deserving but I actively believe that these things are you know are part of what it means to treat myself well to care for myself to love for myself and that exists across a range across a range of different pillars none of which can actually be separated or differentiated from one another and I think that's the way in which certainly we look at it is that it's not about the sex. It's not about going to the gym. It's not about like meditating X amount of minutes. It's about how do I feel and how do I set myself up to feel the best I possibly can about myself? And how do I genuinely respect and care about myself through all of these different ways of being? Yeah. That's brilliant answers, guys. Well, hmm. I've kept you long enough. That that was really <laughs> wonderful. Thank thank you both so much for joining me on the Dish Podcast that was today. A pleasure. Thanks for um, having us. No, it was great, and and I'm really in favour of what you're doing. I think it's great that you're kind of like really spearheading this and and making it just really okay to talk about this kind of stuff because it it, it should be. We should like drop the stigma and um yeah and talk about it. In fact, it was frustrating because we we republished a blog post you did about sexual self care routine and it got banned on Instagram because it had words oh. in it. <laughs> and I was like, no, story of our life. Yeah. <laughs> you come up against this all the time. What do you do? Like how do you get around that? Oh, you just have to be very, very creative. Um so we do. But yeah, but thank you so much for having us on here, Hattie. And for anyone that wants to find Furley, you can find us on the App Store or on Google Play Store very soon. So you can find us at www.weoffurly.com or directly on the App Store and Play Store. And it's F-E-R-L-Y. And we'd love to have you as part of the community. So come and join us. Brilliant. Thanks so much, guys. And enjoy the rest of your day slash evening. And yeah, hope to meet in in real life sometime soon. Oh, that would be (laughs) lovely. Great. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. If you have any questions about today's podcast, please drop us a line at hello at whateveryourdose.com.